0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? All right, let's go. Daniel chapter 3 is where we left off last week as we're working our way through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And as you're finding that, as always, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the ones that is in the rack in front of you, the chair rack in front of you. You can keep that Bible if you don't own one. as our gift to you. We encourage you to read it. Believe that God wrote it, that it's inspired, that it's true, that it's without error. And because God wrote it and because it's completely true, it has all authority. And our custom here at Crosspoint is to put ourselves under the authority of the word rather than to stand over the word and judge it. And so we preach through books of the Bible and ask for the Lord to open our minds and hearts and do wonderful things among us as we look at his book. As you're finding that, let me just add to Reynolds' sentiment, just praise God for women, for mothers, and we are very grateful for for the women in this room, not just those that have physically born children for those of you that, um, that live out femininity in a Christ-like way, it is a beautiful picture of, of what it means to be God's people as women live in that way. So praise God for that. And we live in a world that wants to do everything it can to destroy biblical womanhood. And our, one of our dreams is at Crosspoint would be a safe place for women to be women as God designed them to be. Well, uh, as we're diving into this passage, um, I was preparing this week and it just kind of hit me the, the teaching the Bible. I think maybe I read an article and it captured me that teaching the Bible is a bit like handling fire. If you're careless with it, it can cause great devastation and harm. But if you're careful with it, God can use it to bring about great good. And this chapter that we're going to look at today is one of those chapters that I think maybe is often mishandled. It's this story of these three Hebrew boys, young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace, and God preserves them. Maybe you have sung songs about this in Sunday school, or maybe you've heard this taught with you know, a bit of a moralistic twist. If you would just be more like these boys, then God will meet you halfway and bless you and deliver you out of whatever trial you are in. Well, I hope that if one thing becomes clear, that I don't think that is the point of this text. And I pray that this, the fire that is in this text would not burn us and devastate us into bad theology, but that it would light a path for us and that it would illuminate the cross and the good work of Jesus that God has brought about through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So with that, let me pray. We're going to dive into it. Uh, I know some of you are note takers. You get nervous when I don't have an outline because you think it gets, makes me go off the rails and get unhinged, which is probably true. So I'm going to give it to you up front so you can relax. All right? So here it is. We're going to look at just four things as we work through this chapter. I think there's four kind of characters or sets of characters. A prideful king, a faithful few, a God who delivers, and a decision to be made. That's the outline that we'll look at as we work through this chapter. A prideful king, a faithful few, a God who delivers, and a decision to be made. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we, as we open our hearts and minds and eyes to gaze at your word, I pray that you would help us. We need your help. I need your help to rightly think about and interpret this story, this true scene that happened in the history of your people thousands of years ago for our encouragement to display the beauty of Christ. Lord, I pray for unbelievers, even as Springer, I pray my prayer with him as he's prayed at the beginning that you would draw unbelievers to faith in you this morning. And we know that you can, that that can only happen by your free and sovereign grace. So Lord, give the very thing that you require, which is faith and repentance. Give those gifts freely today. And for people who are already trusting in Christ, Lord, would you spur us on to love and good deeds and help us to fight sin and glorify you. Lord, for women in this room, Lord, encourage them in Christ-like womanhood as, as we as a church gather. Let them know that they're loved and respected and honored. Lord, I pray for Mount Zion Baptist Church on Double Churches Road and my friend, Pastor Tom Neville there. Encourage him as he preaches your word this morning and bring people to faith in that congregation and encourage the believers there. And now, Lord, help us as we look at your word. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a little background before we dive into uh, Daniel 3. Remember, God's people, Israel who God created out of nothing and called to be his light to shine to the nations have been rebellious to God. He warned them that if they continued in their rebellion that he was going to bring a foreign army to conquer them and carry them off into captivity as a means by which he would judge them and sanctify them even as he allowed them to be defeated by their enemies. Well, that very thing happened and in around 586 B.C., The Babylonian kingdom, led by this man named King Nebuchadnezzar, conquered God's people, Israel, carried them off into captivity. And in the first couple chapters we read about, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were particularly bright and talented and skillful Jewish young men, that this king, Nebuchadnezzar, selected for himself to indoctrinate them into his culture. They're in captivity, but yet they resisted his his, uh, his education, his indoctrination, and we saw God provide for them in chapter 1. And then last week, we looked at how Daniel interpreted this dream and just spoke truth to power as he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we would have thought that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar would be humbled at this point. But we see here in chapter 3 that he wasn't so humbled at all. So, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth breadth six cubits. So we don't use those measurements much these days. That's about 90 feet tall and about nine feet wide. So it's this statue of gold. And remember what the dream was that Daniel interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two. Remember he said there's going to be this statue and the head is going to be gold and the chest is going to be a silver, and the mid-portion is going to be uh, bronze, I believe it was, and then the legs of iron, and the interpretation of that dream was that these were four successive kingdoms. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are like the head, which is gold, and then there's this next kingdom that's going to come after you, and then a kingdom after that, and a kingdom after that, four kingdoms. But ultimately the point of the story was that there was this stone not cut by human hands that would come and crush these kingdoms and establish the kingdom of God forever and ever. And we know that that is a picture of Jesus, the true stone who comes and crashes and smashes and demolishes all opposing kingdoms. But Nebuchadnezzar apparently didn't get the message because here he's building a statue that's not just A statue with a head of gold, but the whole body's gold. So basically, this is his defiance saying, forget that dream. I'm the business, is what he's saying, basically. And then it continues, he set it up. Notice how many times here that in the first few verses, it will say that he set up. Just accentuating Nebuchadnezzar's folly and arrogance. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So notice, it's not just the Babylonians and a few Jewish people that they've conquered. It's all of the people that they've conquered now are being forced to bow down. And any time music plays, notice, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is ruining all music. It's like reverse musical chairs. You know, when the music's playing, you can move around. Then when it stops, you have to find a chair. Well, it's the reverse here, right? You can kind of go about your business. But when the music starts playing, you need to stop and bow down all types of music. What arrogance. Verse 6, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, I mean everything, One 100, <laughs> Motown, Oldies, That new stuff that you people, young people think passes as music these days. All of it. (laughs) Every kind of music. All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down. Notice the repetition. It's telling us something. All the languages, all languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So let's pause there and look for just a moment at a prideful king. Nebuchadnezzar's pride on the heels of the dream that we read about last week is actually quite stunning, isn't it? Was he not listening to the dream that Daniel explained to him in chapter 2? Was this just direct defiance of it? Notice, like I said before, he didn't just make a statue that's head was gold, but the whole statue was gold. He's saying, I will defy that dream from the Lord, and I am going to establish my kingdom, and I am going to make all peoples come and worship me. This is like the direct opposite of the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5, where it says that God will bring peoples from every tribe and every tongue and every nation to come and worship him, the true king. And we see the complete opposite of that in Nebuchadnezzar's goal here in setting up this statue. Nebuchadnezzar was a glory thief demanding worship from people. But let's not stop at Nebuchadnezzar. See, here's one of the ways that maybe we have misread this story in the past. And this is like I think our default way when we come to the Bible. Don't we instinctively read ourselves into the good guy? I know <laughs> I do. All right, if anybody else has a friend, no, Brad, of course I would never do that. Okay, thank you for being more spiritual than I am. But our default mode, because the world rotates around our belly button just by instinct, we read ourselves. So we think that we're like these three Hebrew boys that are going to stand up against it. But friends, we are much more like Nebuchadnezzar than we are like these three Hebrew boys that we're going to read about in a second, right? See, we instantly think about, oh yeah, that's America, or that's President so-and-so, or that's Trump, or that's Hillary, or this person, we're living, yeah, well, all those things may be true, but there's a little Nebuchadnezzar that lives inside of me that just wants the world to worship and bow down to me when I play my music. Amen? (laughs) I know it's a little quiet in here, got a little little intense, a little quick. But let's also acknowledge that our world, our culture, friends, is like a modern-day Babylon. And when the music plays, it commands us to bow down. Now, here's some more work we have to do. We we don't... We almost look at these cultures and we think of them as being kind of primitive. Like, how silly is it to worship a golden statue? But I actually think there's a, a, a... I kind of give them a little bit more credit than us because even though that's false worship, at least you can melt that baby down and make some watches out of it or something. I mean, think about the idols, I-D-O-L-S, that we worship, right? That we bow down to. That when our culture plays the song, we just bow down to. Just a couple of them that I've been wrestling with in my own soul and in my own family is just, just... Kids' achievement. We have a a culture that worships exceptional children. And I'm all for exceptional children. But it's not because we really want our kids to be exceptional. We just want the world to think that we're exceptional because we want to be awesome. And so i got to teach my kid how to throw a curveball when he's 7 and i got to get him in all the advanced stuff and he's got to do this and that and the other. And it is like when the music plays, when the culture says that this is what it means to be a successful parent, we bow down to it and we run our kids around like lab rats on crack fearful that they might miss out on an, an opportunity that would cause them to be maybe behind from Johnny or Susie down the block. Another little idol that we bow down to, and it is so prevalent we don't even recognize it, and it is this undercurrent that is in virtual, virtually everything. It's this undercurrent of carnal sexuality in everything, right? Jennifer and I were lamenting that our daughter's interested in sport of volleyball. She's thinking about going out for volleyball. I don't know if she's any good at it or not, but you look at the, the little uniforms that little middle school girls have to wear for volleyball. It's like they're wearing their underwear. W- why? You look at cheerleader uniforms now as compared to 20 or 30 years ago. And it's not like things were better back then. It's just sin was more hidden back then, by the way, right? You just look at everything. Just, just, and I know I beat on this often, but listen, come on. Come on. The, the world has six days and six and three quarters a day with you. I've got an hour with you, so I'm going to beat on it again. It's okay for you to, repeat, to hear this again. But just look at the way kids have to take a picture when they're teenage girls. The hardest person to be in this world is a teenage girl on Instagram. Because God forbid that little girl doesn't have a cute little body in the little line of eight other little girls that are all popping their hips in the exact right way because we live in a world that plays the music that women, if you're not beautiful, if you don't have a body that some punk kid wants, then you aren't worth it. And we all bow down when the music is played. We all do. We all do. We men, we, we don't pay attention, we, we, don't, we don't snap into reality unless a beautiful woman will promote a, pro, a product to us. We all bow down. Christian churches don't put regular people on their, their, their websites because God forbid we have anybody but the awesome looking person on our website to do the testimony video. It is carnal, banal sexuality when the music plays. Put the beautiful people up there because we all bow down to earthly beauty. Amen. And you know what? Listen, I'm not. This, we're all in that. Let's let's not be frogs that sit in the boiling water and die before we realize the water's too hot. Let's reject that. And let, let, let this room and the culture of this church be a place where womanhood and bodies and mere outward looks are not objectified. Like, like that's the biggest gift we could do. Not a flower or a box of candy for a woman, but to craft and create a culture in our church where we fight against this carnal undertone of sexuality to everything. And by the way, just one little rabbit trail here, that's one reason why the church is so weak at speaking to issues of sexuality in our culture, right? That's why many heterosexual Christians can't address the issue of homosexuality biblically because we are such hypocrites in the execution of biblical sexuality, And so we have no voice because we're just as perverted as anybody else, right? I meant this to be encouraging. All right. Cheer up or be convicted or whatever. I mean, we even see this one last little thing, and then I'm getting off this soapbox. We even see this on the album covers of Christian music. It's just a carnal undertone of sexuality. Sexuality. You know, the guy with the jeans and he looks cool with a little soul patch and glasses and hair that looks like a woman, but all of a sudden that's become masculine in the last couple decades. What what, what happened? And he's sitting there and he's just kind of giving you this seductive look. Hey, baby, buy my album about Jesus. (laughs) And the same thing for the woman, right? Right? The Christian contemporary artist, God forbid, she not have a hip line that looks good in jeans in some, you know, wheat field out there sitting on a playing a piano. We are addicted to sexual aesthetics. And when the music plays, we all bow down. All right, that's getting uncomfortable. Let's keep reading. A prideful king. We're the prideful kings, aren't we? Yeah. Now let's look at a faithful few. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... I'm going to give you another chance here. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? What a sentence. Look at that question at the midway through verse 14. Is it true? Nebuchadnezzar's just calling it out. Let's do this. Let's meet after school on the playground and let's throw punches. Is it true? Earlier this week, um, Josh Allen, are you here today, Josh Allen? Sent me, he's not here, he's working today. Josh Allen, husband of Mercy Allen, sent me an email, and he said, hey, Brad, um, I was reading this sermon from this guy named Charles Spurgeon, you may know him, um, on Daniel 3, and I thought you might be blessed as you're preparing for Daniel 3. Oh, Josh, I was blessed. <laughs> Listen to what Spurgeon says on a sermon, on Daniel chapter 3, on this one little phrase, is it true? Every Christian in this room, every Christian who has ever lived will be asked in some level, in some way, these, this question, just like these boys were asked, is it true? Will you worship the world or will you worship God? Listen to Uncle Chuck and his words 150 years ago. "'Rest assured, my fellow Christians, that at some period or other in the most quiet lives, there will come a moment for open decision. Days will come when we must speak out or prove traitors to our Lord and to His truth. In every house, there comes a time when each person of the family has to take a side and acknowledge to whom he belongs.' The most timid wife or the most unassuming child will be compelled to say, I also am Christ's disciple. Be ready at once to answer the question, is it true? And friends, like no other time in my 45 years, that time is upon us if we are biblical Christians in our age. Here are some questions that are asked of us in this day or will be asked of us in the coming days. Is it true that you believe that God created everything that exists out of nothing? Come on. Is it true? Yes, if you're a Christian, it's something that is true. Is it true that you believe that God made Adam and Eve distinct from other living beings and did not cause man to evolve from ape-like species over millions of years? I mean, you really believe that? Yes, it is true. Is it it true that you believe that God... Now, let me get this straight now. This God who is all-powerful, but yet... He allowed his creation to fall into sin, which has been causing destruction and pain, untold pain, ever since, so that he could glorify himself by redeeming a people for himself and restoring that creation to a state better off than when it all started. So you're saying this God who could stop it all didn't for a secret, mysterious display of his glory. Is that true? Yes. It is true. (laughs) Okay. Foolish Christian. Is it true? Let's let's get it a little bit more whittled down here from the 30,000 foot level to the rubber on the road level. Is it true that you believe that marriage, any marriage other than marriage between one woman and one man, or one woman and one man for a lifetime is sin other, outside of that? Any marriage? Yes, it is true. Okay. All right you prude. Is it true that you believe that all human sexuality is only to be expressed within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman? I mean, come on, man. I love my girlfriend, and I've been with her for a long time. What are you talking about, you foolish, traditional, Bible-thumping prude? You really believe that? Yes, it is true. Is it true that you believe that God, who allowed sin, planned to atone for sin by sending his own son, the second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross for our sins? You mean he could have done it some other way, but that's the way that God chose to reconcile this world to himself? Really? Yes, it is true. Is it true that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, like really got up from the grave after being really dead? Yes, it is true. Is it true that you believe that those who do not put their trust in what God has done in Christ will be judged and condemned to hell because of their unbelief if they do not repent before they die? Yes, it is true. I read these questions to you to snap you out of the powerless, crossless, mm-hmm. bibleless Christianity that much of America consumes that treats the Bible as merely a means to a better life. Friends, that is not the message of the gospel. That is not the message of the Bible. If you are a biblical Christian, if you will stand up and answer that question, you believe some peculiar and miraculous things if you are a Christian. And we live in a world that will ask you that question, is it true? Yes, it is true. And listen to their answer, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach And Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have, I love this, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, I think this is the apex of this chapter. Verse 18, but if Not be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Listen to the faith of these three boys. Look, we believe that God is able to rescue us. But even if He doesn't, we will not bow down to you because to die faithful is better to live faithless is what they're saying. This verse right here, come on, this verse should cause the prosperity gospel that is pumped out on American TV waves waves, to tank. This gospel, this verse smashes the prosperity gospel. And what do I mean by the prosperity gospel? This wicked, false gospel that presents God and the Bible as a means to some sort of more comfortable or profitable end here in this life. That is not the gospel that these three boys worshipped and believed. They believed that regardless of what these 80 or 90 years bring, brings, God is faithful and they were willing to die for that truth. We also know that this can't be teaching... That God is going to automatically deliver us because see here we're we're at a bit of a disadvantage aren't we? we weren't in that, we're not in that moment with those with those boys feeling the pressure that they felt. Now, we know that they were delivered, right? And so as American hearers we're kind of like, yeah, but let, let's put the emphasis on our God is able to deliver us. Uh, but but, it, but we know we got to give kind of biblical theological lip service. But if not, but our God is able. And sometimes we take away from that, that God is obligated to deliver us from our afflictions or our fiery furnaces, but that is not the case in the balance of Christian history. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11. I read it a couple weeks ago. Let me read it again, just a few verses out of Hebrews chapter 11 about Christians who were and were not delivered from their earthly trials. Hebrews 11 verse 32. What more shall I say? The writer says. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. Enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's referring to Daniel that we're going to read about in Daniel chapter 6 in a few weeks. Quenched the power of fire. That's a reference to these three boys. Escaped the edge of the sword. Were made strong out of weakness. Became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight, right? So we're like, yeah, God's able to deliver us. And it starts to go south women received their dead by resu- back their dead by resurrection praise God some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn in two they were killed with a sword they went about in skins and of sheep and goats destitute afflicted mistreated of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. friends, Do you realize what's happening there? The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is putting both examples up to be lauded as examples of great faith. Those whom God delivered and those whom God did not deliver from this earthly trial and allowed them to be sawn in two. Let's have this this but if not type of faith but if not, God, you are able, but if not, do what you will. There's this wonderful story of the English Reformation in the 1550s. There was these two bishops, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, and they were bishops in England in the Reformation, and what was going on in England in the mid-1500s was that basically England was going back and forth between Catholic and Protestant rule, and it was, you know, kind of teetering on the edge whether or not English would that England would accept the reformation. Well, one of the kings dies, and his sister, Edward, Edward VIII, dies or is killed, and his sister, Queen Mary, becomes... Edward was Protestant, and then his sister, Queen Mary, becomes the queen, and she's Catholic, and she was a vicious woman. That's where we get the phrase, bloody Mary, from. Not because she liked a particular drink, but because she killed a bunch of people that opposed the teachings of the Catholic Church. And two of the people that opposed were two bishops, Bishop Ridley and Bishop Latimer. And she called for them to be burned at the stake. And in fact, they were burned at the stake in England for their views, their correct biblical views on October 16th, 1555. Now, don't you think that Ridley and Latimer, who knew the Bible inside out, who were willing to die for the Bible, knew the story of Daniel's deliverance, or of the, of the story of Daniel 3, of these three boys' deliverance in Daniel 3, don't you think that as they were walking to the stake, that they were remembering that story, that maybe God might deliver them from this fire? But God did not. And those two men were hoisted up on the stake in London and were both burned to death for their views on the gospel and the Bible. And Ridley, as flames are engulfing his body, cries out to his friend Latimer. He says this, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day by God's grace light up a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Now, if that doesn't, if that doesn't make you want to shadow box and put some steel in your spine, I, I, I can't help you. Some people God delivers out of their temporary trial and some people God lets endure it for the glory of his name. And for his sovereign purposes. Let's keep going. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other, outer, other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire, I don't know why I'm laughing, these poor guys, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace, Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Praise God. Well, just a little tidbit here before we dig into the point of this last little paragraph here. Who is this fourth man I think is running around in our minds? Is it Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus, the son of God? Or is it an angel? Well, this has been debated through the centuries. I think that the better arguments, as I read on this in the past and especially this week, I think the better arguments for this is that it is an angel of God and not actually the son of God, Jesus pre-incarnate. But here's my point. It's not really crucial wherever you fall on that. And I really don't think that it matters that much, whether this is Jesus or an angel. The point is that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, miraculously intervened, whether through an angel or whether the Son of God coming down before his incarnation and appearing with these men. Regardless, it is God who did it. That would be like somebody runs a touchdown and you're like, no, it was an 86 yard touchdown. No, it was a 75 yard touchdown. It was a touchdown. God did it. Right? Okay. So the main point of the passage is not to quibble over the identity of the fourth man, but to realize that it is not about this identity or even these three men, but they are a shadow that points us to Christ. The point of this passage is not, and this is where maybe we've gone wrong in the past, it's not be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the point of the passage is that they are, are shadows that point to the reality of Christ. If the moral of the story was don't bow down to idols of your culture that demand worship, well, we would all be in a fix because we have all bowed down in many ways. In fact, in ways that we don't even realize. So not only have we failed, we don't even know how deeply we failed. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are examples, good examples, no doubt, that point to something greater. But see, friends, the mere example of these three U's can't save us. But the example that they point to can save us. The point of this passage and this story is not to make us look inside of ourselves for more grit, but to cause us to look outside of ourselves, for free grace that can only be found in Jesus. The point of this story is to make us look to Jesus, the one who resisted for us, as more than just a mere example. In fact, Jesus is tempted in the very same way. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes to Jesus and says, I'll give you all of these kingdoms, If you will merely bow down and worship me. And Jesus resists the temptation and is faithful. But Jesus, this is the gospel now, is more than just an example to follow. He is a substitute that bears the punishment for our failure. And he is the one who doesn't just hold up an example for us to grind towards, but he gives us The victory of his example. Paul quoted it in between songs earlier. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So do you see that? Jesus bears the wrath for our bowing down to idols. He bears the punishment that should have been ours for our faithlessness. He absorbs it. He removes it. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's satisfying the wrath of the holy God the Father, but He's not just satisfying wrath. He's rising in in victory, and because He is perfect in His obedience, He's doing more than an Old Testament example can do. He is giving us His righteousness for all those that will put their hope in Him. That's something that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cannot do. They can't give you anything. They can only point you to the One who can. Do you see that? Therein lies the gospel. I don't think it's said any more clearly than in Romans chapter 5. And this is the point of the sermon where we get into Romans. By the way, get ready, buckle up. January 2017, coming to cross point. Romans, all the way through, not just chapter 8, the whole ball of wax. Start memorizing it now. That's right, glory. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. Here's the argument. Herein is the gospel. Listen to this, dear friend. Therefore, Verse 18 of chapter 5, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. In other words, our first father, Adam, was an idol worshiper. He worshipped his own self and he gave birth to a bunch of fallen idolaters, right? We're all idol. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that the human heart is an idol factor, and we pump it out. And we are all little idolatry makers, just like our first father Adam. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adams, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Right? Do you see that? So herein lies the gospel. It's not morality. It's not read this Old Testament story. Look at this good example. Now try hard. No, the gospel is, look at this Old Testament example, let it point you to the cross, the one who didn't just die as an example, but died as a sacrifice and a substitute, and now took your sin, and now, if you will repent and believe, gives you his righteousness and his Holy Spirit that dwells in you, so that you too now, not because of grit, but because of grace, can stand in your modern day Babylon and not bow down that's the good news of the gospel and then finally we end with the last paragraph a decision to be made verse 26 then nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared shadrach meshach and abednego servants of the most high god come out and come here then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over their, the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Friends, it sounds like maybe Nebuchadnezzar is giving lip service to God, but that's all he's giving. Do you notice that this this miraculous event has not truly brought Nebuchadnezzar to faith? He's merely now acknowledging the one true God as a God who delivers in this particular way, unlike all of the other gods. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't made God his God. He's just acknowledged that God of these three Hebrew boys is a God who did a particular thing. Friends, the point is is that there are many people who believe in God but do not know God. Are you one of those people? I think our city, I think our culture, I think our country is filled with those types of people who think that they're right with God merely because they give mental assent to the reality of a deity. But they don't truly know God. They have not truly recognized that they are idol worshipers who deserve God's wrath and that their only hope is Jesus, the perfect God-man, as Reynolds quoted for us in his prayer, the perfect God-man that represents, mediates us. He's fully God, fully man. He bears the wrath that should have been ours he rises again in victory because he's perfect and sinless and eternally God. And now his righteousness is given to all those that will put their hope in him. We just have a general notion because we're a Christian nation as we think, which is an obvious not reality. And we just think because we're Southerners that maybe grow up in a Bible kind of belt area, that just because of that sort of association that we somehow are right with God and because we watch Fox News and vote Republican, we'll be all right on Judgment Day. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. I I remember, um, I I, I end with this. (laughs) I, I grew up like that. I grew up in a mainline church that did not preach the gospel. The preacher got up and just told stories about how to be good. And I thought that I was right with a holy, righteous God. I believed that his son was named Jesus, and he came to this earth, and he did a bunch of good stuff, fed some people, stopped some rain. And, you know, if I kind of generally try and live up to what he... I'd be pretty, pretty good. I'd be okay. My brother went away to college. <laughs> he, he, he heard the true gospel, and he, he truly became born again. And then when he was in college... He would come back every year, and he would witness to me, and he would say, Brad, you need to believe in Jesus. You're a sinner. And I'd say, no, I'm not. And he'd say, yes, you are. <laughs> you're, you're not trusting in Jesus. And he did this for four years. And then my senior year in high school, his senior year of college, he came back, and he witnessed to me, and just by God's sovereign grace, he opened my eyes And over his spring break, my brother brought four of his buddies that he played football with in college. They were all huge men. Two of them ended up playing in the NFL. And they surrounded me in my mom and dad, my my parents' den. And they told me that I needed to trust in the finished work of Christ and that that was my only hope. And God, by his sovereign grace, opened my eyes That up to that point, I was just giving lip service to the notion of God and not truly trusting in the one true God. Friends, is that you? Is that you? If it is, you don't need to repeat any prayer after me. If it is, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and come down and fill anything out those things may be helpful, but I don't want you to think that a sovereign God is up in heaven right now with a four-leaf clover, hoping that, you know, he loves me, he loves me not, that maybe you will make a decision for him. Friends, your only hope Is that your dead heart would be made alive by a sovereign God who gives what he commands? And if you have ears to hear, if right now your heart is beating a little fast because you realize that when I describe myself as a teenager, I am describing you, you are starting to realize that your only hope is not for you to negotiate with God and say, okay, this has been kind of moving. I think I will start to try better to be, you know, good with God. Friends, if that's what you are taking away from this, you have not heard me. Your only hope is that the God of the universe would give you the very thing that He requires of you and that is faith. That's a new heart where your heart came in dead. He alone can make it alive and when He makes it alive He gives it the gift of faith where you can behold and trust in the work of His Son and He gives you the gift of repentance where you can move away from and reject your idols and serve Him. Your only hope right now your only hope is that God would give it to you. And here's the great news. He loves to give that gift because he is rich in mercy, the Bible says. So look away from yourselves. Don't wait for words to repeat or a card to fill out or a hand to raise. Write now look away from yourself to God and say, God, I know that you are giving me a new heart. I turn away from the idols I have bowed down to and I trust in you and what you have done, not just as a general notion of God, but what you, God, the one true God, have done in your son to bear the punishment that should have been mine. And then you raised him from that grave and you gave him victory over sin, death, and and every idol that I have given into, and now because of him, I can be in you and yours forever. Do that even now. And dead, sleepy slumber, self absorbed Christian, let this story jolt you out of cultural Christianity and let it make you so miserable that you will be satisfied with nothing else than bowing down to the one true King. Let that be true of my heart and yours too. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond, I pray that you would draw unbelievers that came into this room to faith in Jesus. Friend, if that is you, even right now, as I'm praying just right now, say, Lord, I want to serve you and you alone. I don't have it all figured out, but I believe, I put my hope and my trust and my faith in what you have done in your son Jesus to atone for my sin. Friend, cry out to God. Pray that right now. Put your hope. Say, Jesus. I trust in you, not myself. Do it. Lord, would you give that faith to pray that prayer to many in this room who do not know you even now. Lord, would you do it? And for those of us that know you, that do serve the one true living God, would you, would you, Lord, would you snatch us out of our slumber and the way that we just give in, even after we've known you for years, the way we're just so susceptible to the music of this world. And God, would you let us be people that say we will not bow down to idols, even if God leaves me in this trial for decades to come, I will not. Bow down. It is true. I believe in you, O oh Lord. Lord, put that steel in our spine and do it for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of those who came and lost, but who in eternity past you have set your affection on. Call into faith in Jesus now, I pray, Lord, I pray.